The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. Concerns grow over the U.S. commitment to providing more aid to Ukraine. Debate as to whether the United States should pass another $50 billion in spending. The positions are clearly entrenched here. Putin is banking on the United States failing to deliver for Ukraine. The ambivalence of U.S. lawmakers to fund Ukraine and what it means for the war against Russia. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... Jets without jet fuel. Something like this could be realized within a decade. The next frontier of battery-powered flight. Books for the holidays. This is a beach book for the winter. Becky's seasonal picks for the readers on your list. And how she became Veruca Salt. Mel Stewart, the director, said, Right, now, can we get on with it? Put her down the chute. A star of the original Wonka movie looks back on her role in a classic. All today on Day 6. The Candy is Dandy edition. People on the front line, families which are waiting for their heroes at home, that they think that the United States doesn't support Ukraine and that Ukraine is alone. And of course, people afraid to be again alone. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky was in Washington this week, hoping to secure additional military assistance for his country's war against Russia. But in the U.S. Congress, funding for Ukraine is wrapped up in a partisan domestic fight over the U.S. southern border and facing growing Republican opposition. Putin is banking on the United States failing to deliver for Ukraine. We must, we must, we must prove him wrong. It now seems unlikely Congress will approve the largest and most significant block of funding for Ukraine before the end of the year. And Tim Mack says that could have significant consequences, and not just for Ukraine. Tim Mack is an independent journalist based in Kyiv. He's a former NPR correspondent, a former U.S. Army medic, and the founder of the counter-offensive news website. Tim, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thanks for having me. What message do you think is being sent to Ukraine with this ongoing impasse in the U.S. Congress, the reluctance to fund the war? I think there are two messages. One um, is Ukrainians are really depending on their allies who have said for a very long time that they will be with Ukraine as long as it takes. This is not as long as it takes. Mm -hmm. This is not even two years into the full-scale invasion. And what Ukrainians are starting to feel is a sense of abandonment. I'm sensing this growing bitterness towards the United States. Why can't they get this together is a common question. There is a danger that over time, if the outcome of this war isn't a positive outcome, that Ukrainians will blame America for not giving help where they really desperately need it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second message is, is a broader strategic message, not just to Russia. Um, it's a message to other authoritarian states like China. That although the West may be interested in the short term in sanctioning you or condemning you or trying to isolate you, over time, fatigue will set in Mm -hmm. and their unity will not last as long as, let's say, an autocrat's uh, singular will might. Uh, And that China, for example, might be able to to risk an invasion of 
let's say, Taiwan. I mean, this is the danger of, of the broader message that uh, American actions this week um, might send. And what about the cost to people in Ukraine who are feeling this bitterness right now at a, a fairly crucial time in the war? Psychologically, what, what, what does that do to the resolve to continue? Well, I don't sense a diminishment uh, among Ukrainian resolve to continue. Mm. I mean, that's still there as it was last week, as it was last year. If the United States ultimately decides that they're going to stop funding their partners in Ukraine, that's not going to mean the end of the war. It's just going to mean that more Ukrainians will die as they continue to resist. I I just don't sense that this means Ukraine will stop fighting uh, or that they're despondent or that they're giving up. Ukrainians are definitely feeling a lot more pessimistic now than they were six months ago, but that doesn't mean that they've lost the will to fight. This is very much a, a political problem right now. And I just want to share with you what Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who's long been considered a hawk and, and has supported the war, said this week. He told Vladimir Zelensky that this isn't about him. It isn't about Ukraine. So what is it then? What is the opposition to this funding about for some U.S. Republicans? This is the bizarre element of it all. And this is a very confusing point for a lot of Ukrainians. But right now, Ukraine aid is being wrapped up in issues totally unrelated to the war, totally unrelated really even to general foreign affairs outside of America's backyard. It's being lumped in with border issues. And that's an issue that Zelensky can do nothing about and the, you know, Ukrainians can do nothing about. Um, Republicans are counting on uh, Democrats wanting Ukraine aid so badly that they can use this leverage to extract concessions from the Biden administration and other Democrats. Uh, That's where it just gets entirely confusing and imperils the whole package. Let's zoom out a little bit. You're in Kiev, but I want to ask how the wider war is going. How badly does Ukraine need this military assistance right now? Well, here's the thing about this war. It's been improperly characterized, in my view, as, as being a stalemate. I mean, there, it, if you were to go out to the front lines today, you wouldn't really describe it that way. It's an artillery duel. Mm-hmm. Rounds upon rounds upon rounds of artillery shells are being fired on a daily basis just to keep the lines where they are. Mm-hmm. There's an incredible amount of firepower being expended. Drones are being sent out in waves, being destroyed, need to be replaced. Um, What I'd say is that Ukraine desperately needs help maintaining its stockpiles of ammunition in order to hold the line. Basic things uh, from these 155-millimeter artillery shells to uh, long-range missiles to these small drones that are used for everything from reconnaissance to softening up Russian defenses. And that's just to hold the line. And um, without American aid, without European aid, uh, it's sure to be that, that Ukraine is going to lose some footing in the coming months and over the next year. This week, Russian missiles did hit Kyiv, where you are right now. Do you think that's a coincidence? Is, is Putin timing this, this with a perceived Ukrainian failure in Washington? Are these celebratory hits on Kyiv, or are they designed to try to chip away at morale? Well, it, it's hard to speculate about you know what the purpose of it was, but you, we can surmise that they're coming at a, at a time when the days are getting shorter, when the days are getting colder here, mm-hmm. and where, where there's probably as much pessimism 
in Kyiv and across the nation as there has been since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. Mm. And also there were these hacking attacks that hit Kyivstar, the largest telecommunications provider in the country this week, and meaning that people are without their cell phone service, without home internet access for days. And that's not a trivial challenge. Mm. People are warned of incoming missile and drone attacks Mm -hmm. by getting an app on their phone. Without internet, they're not able to seek shelter. And dozens of people this week have been injured as a result of attacks. Uh, One has to wonder if they had had full access to their cell phones and uh, home internet access, whether the casualties would have been as great. I mean, all of this is combining to lead to a rather dark mood in this city right now and a lot of questions about what's going to come next. Just back to U.S. politics briefly, if, if Congress fails to find a way to pass this funding, what does that say about the U.S.'s ability or willingness to assert its power and, and influence globally? I mean, is, is that the end of an era? If the United States is unable to provide additional aid, it will send a message that the United States says the right things, strikes the right tone, but when the chips are down, isn't with you in the long haul. Look at how they abandoned Ukraine. That's going to be a very potent message for America's adversaries. Um, I think that's one of the main reasons why the Biden administration has been trying to push for this one-year extension on Ukraine aid. Tim, we're a couple of weeks away from a new year. It will be an election year in the United States. What happens if the Republicans and Donald Trump win the White House? And what are Ukrainians telling you about that possibility? Well, you know, I I covered gun policy for a long time in the United States. And so last year, after the full-scale invasion of Russia began, I went back to the States and and went to an NRA convention. And Donald Trump gave a speech on gun rights and got polite applause from Donald Trump faithful, NRA faithful. Um, But the line that got him the biggest round of applause, the entire speech, was when he said, if I'm reelected, I'm going to instantly, that same day, end any aid to Ukraine. This was the most popular line that he gave that entire day. Now, when I talk to Ukrainians, they kind of consider that the worst case scenario for their future and for their point of view in the war. It may force a much darker series of events than would otherwise happen. I mean, and they're really dreading that outcome from every conversation I've had with Ukrainians. Tim, Max, stay safe. All the best to you and all of your Ukrainian friends in Kiev and happy holidays to you. Thanks and happy holidays to you too. Tim Mack is an independent journalist in Kyiv, Ukraine, and the founder of the Counteroffensive News website. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. This hope is based on facts. We have to work hard, but we have, everything is on the table right now to reach an agreement, and I think that we can see it. We see the agreement. In Quebec, more than half a million public sector workers have been on strike this week. That's more than 6% of the province's entire population. Public schools have been shut down. Healthcare appointments cancelled. On Wednesday, Premier François Legault said he hoped students would be returning to class on Monday. The FAE Teachers Union called that idea laughable. Meanwhile, the Common Front Coalition and the Nurses Union went back to the bargaining table Friday morning. But new contract agreements have not yet been reached. And the entire Indigenous Advisory Council for CN Rail resigned this week. 
The 12 members were tasked with advising the National Railway Company on improving its relationship with Indigenous people. But council co-chairs Murray Sinclair and Roberta Jameson say the company failed to acknowledge past wrongs and didn't follow the panel's recommendations for reconciliation. Following the resignations, CN Rail put out a statement acknowledging railways have played a role in colonialism, a move some council members say falls short of a proper apology. The group's resignations will come into effect at the end of the year. Still lots to come on Day 6, including she played one of the brattiest kids in cinema, how Julie Don Cole became Veruca Salt. I was a, a lot more Charlie Bucket than Veruca. We won't tackle climate change unless we take people with us. Climate politics is close to breaking point. Okay, Rishi, you can take a few people with you. We hear there's a lot of space on your private jet. That was UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak speaking at the COP28 conference in Dubai. He, his foreign secretary, and King Charles all made the trip there from London in three separate private jets. So yeah, if he wanted to bring someone along in his climate fight, he might have started there. Though, to be fair... He's not alone. At COP26 in Glasgow, there were more than 100 private jets which flew in for the conference. And this conference is set to have the largest carbon footprint of them all so far. Those jets were back in the air this week as COP28 wrapped up. On Wednesday, COP28 President Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber officially approved the latest climate deal, one that calls for a transition away from fossil fuels. It's much stronger language than we've seen in previous agreements, but it does come with some caveats. It calls on countries to transition away from fossil fuels, but we're also finding formulations that are still giving leeway to countries to handle the issue as they please. The aviation industry is a particularly sore spot in the transition away from fossil fuels because air travel comes with a massive carbon footprint. And there aren't a lot of easy ways around that. But researchers are working hard to offer up alternatives, including electric planes. Dr. Venkat Vishwanathan is an associate professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan. He's working on ultra-light electric batteries that he hopes could eventually help you fly from Canada to the U.S. without any fuel at all. Venkat Vishwanathan, welcome to Day 6. Happy to be here. Electric cars are ubiquitous these days, but planes, not so much. Why is it so difficult to make a functional electric plane? The main challenge is weight. Hmm. The best batteries that we have today to power electric cars and electric planes are about 20 to 30 times heavier than the usable energy delivered by fuel, fossil fuels. Now you can ask why does that challenge not manifest itself for electric cars? It turns out that what you do is you make the car heavier the same approach does not work with electric planes because once you make them heavier, it requires more energy to move the object because of the fact that you need to lift it up. Uh, so that challenge basically makes it that electric planes that you have today are, are only limited to a few tens of miles, uh, maybe a hundred. But even with that model of small electric planes capable of, of short distances, there seems to be a business use for them. There are electric aircrafts out there already. The Vancouver company Harbor Air made headlines last summer when it flew a small electric seaplane from Vancouver to a terminal outside Victoria. Where else are these smaller electric planes being put into use right now? 
Yeah, one attractive use case that is being explored very rapidly is the idea of this air taxi. And the vision here is that you might land in you know, Newark Airport in uh, New York, and then you might want to go to Manhattan, and you might now take a small electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. Mm-hmm. And now that can be done in about five to 10 minutes compared to you know, the soul-crushing traffic that you have to go through uh, the <laughs> Hudson Tunnel. And so uh, those are the kinds of use cases that are imagined. Uh, now there's actually, you know, a number of cities that are considering this option, Chicago, uh, O'Hare, Dallas, and, and a number of other cities across the U.S., across the globe, are considering these air taxis. Okay, forgive me for saying this, but the, the flying taxi sounds like something out of the Jetsons. How do we know that the soul-crushing traffic that's on the ground won't just get transferred into the air? And, and, and how do we know that that will actually, there'll be a path, there'll be clearance for, for these kinds of vehicles if they become popular? Yeah, so the, the one advantage in the air is uh, you don't just have one lane, right? True. The, the kind of use case that we're imagining, uh, of course, there has to be improvements in air traffic management. Uh, I think this is not an insurmountable challenge because of the fact that you can fly at different altitudes. Um, and you know, even if nothing else, we, if you can displace all the helicopter trips that are currently being taken, I think that is an immediate replacement that can be done one-to-one mm-hmm. with whatever air traffic management that's there today. It's not just passenger airlines that would be interested in this technology either. What about the the cargo industry? We're already seeing drones being used or, or tested by some companies. How long will it be before UPS starts using electric airplanes for domestic cargo? Yeah, in fact, UPS has already uh, signed a partnership with Beta Technologies for uh, electric flight deliveries. And in fact, this is one of the great use cases because not only do you have carbon neutrality, but also you have lower operating costs because the maintenance associated with an electric flight is going to be much lower. Right. And so I think this is going to be uh, something that will enable delivery costs to go down for remote areas. Hmm. Well, let's talk about bigger planes because obviously then if we, if we want to bring passenger travel into the picture, you're going to have to make a smaller, lighter battery. Is there a trajectory that shows that that's possible right now, that the technology might actually exist someday? Yeah. So this this has been the main subject of what has occupied my brain cycles over the last five to six years. Uh. If you want to make a significant dent into the emissions associated with the aviation sector, you need to address larger planes. Then with that, sort of we set this goalpost of 1,000 watt-hours per kilogram. Um, and that number is about four times what you might find in an electric car today. Okay. And with that four times lighter battery, what you can enable is a narrow-body aircraft. So, you know, think A320, think 737, single aisle, right? So mm-hmm. uh, the kind that you might take for trips of the range of about 1,000 or so nautical miles. And so that particular battery, if you can enable that, will realize a 737 or an A320 that can go about a thousand nautical miles with a hundred passengers. And so that's the North Star that we're shooting for. And I think that is the goalpost uh, that now the community is trying to go after. Interesting. So what, what would the time frame be for that? How soon do you think you could do it? If you look at the trajectory of how long it has taken for a new materials innovation to get to market. It used to be about 20 years or so, you know, for the last sort of 50 years, if you look at innovations across sectors. That number has shrunk. And so 
what we expect is that something like this could be realized within a decade, of course, with the right kind of capital investments. Okay. Well, that is significant, though, because it would mean a domestic traveler in Canada or the United States could get home on an electric flight. What would that mean for the airline industry's carbon footprint? If we were to electrify all aircraft up to the size of a 737 passenger jet, how big of an emissions cut would that represent? So if you imagine that all of the trips that are taken today are electrified by this aircraft that can do, you know, a thousand nautical miles, Mm -hmm. that represents about 80% of the departures globally. This is a very large number. Uh, Of course, from the emission standpoint, it's a little bit lower because the larger trips cause more emissions, but it's still a a third of the entire uh, emissions associated with the aviation sector. And so if you realize this, there's a very large price in terms of addressing the significant emissions associated with aviation. Uh And given that prize, what is the interest then of the major aerospace companies, of Boeing, of Airbus, in establishing electric passenger vehicles? I think almost all major airframers, along with a number of upstarts that are building these kinds of electric aircraft, you know, Boeing, Airbus have numerous partnerships, Mm -hmm. along with a lot of companies, new companies, and I think the message is very clear that this is very important because the aviation sector is sort of seen as the last one to clean up. And so there's a, there's a significant interest in being able to make this happen. Will there ever be a day when transatlantic flight using electric power will, will, will be possible when, when something more than a narrow-bodied plane could be lifted by one of these batteries? You know, one should never say never, but uh, it, it's very difficult because you need another probably 10 times lighter than where we are today. So in this sort of timeline that we talked about, it takes probably about a decade for any one of these innovations to come to fruition. Mm -hmm. So I would guess that something that could go transatlantic is probably, you know, 30 or so years out. When you're sitting in traffic on your way to the airport, are you dreaming of an electric plane or dreaming of an electric taxi? (laughs) I've been in that soul-destroying traffic many, many times. (laughs) Uh, I think we would all enjoy an electric air taxi. But of course, from the perspective of emissions, uh, one that I care about very much in my research, uh, I think one should realize the electric planes because that's what makes a meaningful impact on the future of the planet. Venkat Vishwanathan, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks a lot, Brian. Dr. Venkat Vishwanathan is an associate professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan. You see, I'm something of a magician, inventor, and chocolate maker. So quiet up and listen down. Nope, scratch that, reverse it. This week, a whole new generation is being introduced to Willy Wonka, the candy man himself. This time, Timothy Chalamet has taken on the role. The film is Wonka. It's the story of the early days of the chocolate factory. But for many of us, any mention of Willy Wonka will always bring up memories of this. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look. And you'll see into your imagination. That's the 1971 movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory starring Gene Wilder. 
For some of the young actors in that film, getting cast was like winning a golden ticket of their own. Julie Don Cole played the bratty Veruca Salt. It was her first major acting role, and it changed her life. Julie Don Cole, welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Julie, I want to start out by playing a clip from the film. Listen to this. I want my geese to lay gold eggs for Easter. It will, sweetheart. At least a hundred a day. Anything you say. And by the way, what? I want a feast. You ate before you came to the factory. I want a bean feast. So that's, that's a little bit of your big musical number. I want it now. And you sound amazing when we hear that. I, I, I listen to it now and I'm thinking, gosh, I think my voice has dropped at least two octaves <laughs> since then. But, but I, I, I do still know all the words, more or less. <laughs> what do you remember about the day you filmed the scene? Because it was a special day for you. Well, it was, and I remember it very clearly because it was my 13th birthday. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I remember um, being in another studio, actually, and then the assistant director came running in, going, Julie, Julie, you got to get on set. I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be in trouble now. Mel's going to tell me <laughs> off and everything. And all the lights were off um, in the studio, and there was a birthday cake. They sang happy birthday to me. And then Mel Stewart, the director, said, right, now, can we get on with it? Put her down the chute. <laughs> <laughs> they threw you down the trash chute. Yep, yep, oh, yep, yep. what a great yeah. story. So so this was really your first big role. What was the audition yeah. process like for you? How did you land it? Um, I had just gone to theatre school in London. I'd been going for some castings for various things and, you know, not quite landing the job. You know, you get close and then they'd say, what have you been in? Mm -hmm. And I would then, you know, be honest and say nothing. Um, but this time I decided to wise up and I'm afraid I lied. Um <laughs> It's a bit Veruca, really, isn't it? Um, I just made up a whole bunch of stuff. Couldn't do it now with the internet because they'd be able to search. But, no, true, but, true. But if yeah. I was your agent, I would have said, tell them anything. Tell them yeah. anything to yeah. get the job. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've, I've flown to the moon. Of course I have. And I wanted that job. I read the book the night before I went back for the final interview. And just reading the book, you know, the description of the, the chocolate room, the pure imagination room, just amazing thinking i really want to be in this movie and, and did it live up to the to, to what the experience of walking onto that set and seeing that room then in, in real life that what was was it magical it did and it was magical you know they, they took over the entire sound stage to build it there yeah. was no cgi no computer generated stuff and it was the total you know size height of the the sound stage with a you know a river running through it and the waterfall and the boat and grass and trees and it was amazing i used to instead of going when we had lunch breaks you know instead of going to the the canteen for for lunch i would um, get sandwiches and have a picnic by the river uh, it was my nice. my little make believe world <laughs> what was your relationship like with the other kids well, really good. I mean, we are still friends, those of us that are still here. Sadly, we lost uh, Violet Beauregard a few years ago. Yes. Um, but I still am in regular contact with Mike TV, Charlie Bucket and Augustus Gloop. So we were all quite a tight knit group. Didn't you have kind yeah. of a crush? On Peter Ostrom, yes, who played Charlie? Yes, I did. So did Denise. And we, we were very civilised about it. We just used to take it in turns to stand next to him uh. and, you know, <laughs> smile nicely at him. He, he's, he blushes like mad when we, you know, tease him now about it. He had no idea what was going on. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Gene Wilder is a legendary actor and yeah. he passed away in 2016. But tell yeah. me what it was like for you to work with that, that accomplished performer on this film 
Well, he, he to us, he was just Gene, you know, a nice, nice, kind man. So I wasn't in awe of him. You know, it was just Gene. But he also looked out for me particularly, which was really kind of him. The film was shot in Germany. We were out there for three months. All the other kids had parents with them or sisters or brothers. You know, they all had big family groups with them. But I was on my own. And when Gene found that out after a week or two of filming, he, he apparently, and I only heard this from Rusty Goff, who played one of the Oompa Loompas, he took him on one side and said, boys, we've got to look out for this girl. Wow, that's, that's such a kind <laughs> thing to do. I know. What he a sweetie. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, Veroka is, you know, she's such a brat. She's <laughs> she just, is. and her privilege is just so suffocating. But that's not your own experience. That's not no. the background that you came from. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, no, my background was very humble. I mean, I was a, a lot more Charlie Bucket than Veruca. Mm. You know, my mum was a single mum, you know, working three jobs if she could and bringing up my sister and I on her own. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to kind of get the harp out and play on the harp strings, but it was, <laughs> you know, we didn't have a lot of money. There were times when we were really poor. So, you know, playing this girl that had fur coats and all that, you know, and being on a movie set and... Yeah, I, I came back down to earth pretty quickly with a bump. You know, when I got back to the UK after filming three months there and I said to my mother, you know, when we got back to the hotel, oh, oh, are we getting a taxi home? No, darling, we're going on the bus. <laughs> but you, was it odd for you when the film became such a huge hit so many years later? It was very strange, um, you know, uh, when it came out and the movie theatres, it ran for a few weeks, did not get good reviews, you know, mixed reviews, I would say, and it disappeared. And you're thinking, oh, well, that's sad, but, you know, hey, it's gone. Um, and then I had a, a, you know, a kind of different career, if you like. I um, I did uh, soap opera with the BBC and mm -hmm. various other things. So Willy Wonka for me was forgotten about for a long time until probably the 80s. And then, you know, I'd hear it being referred to on, you know, interviews by, you know, somebody or other or an Oprah King. Oh, that's odd. Yeah. And then I got asked to do a convention uh, that would have been 97. And, you know, turning up at that convention in uh, New Jersey, I'd never been to one before. I didn't know what happened. You know, the, the fact that people would be queuing up to talk to you was it was mind blowing. <laughs> so, yeah, it's 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 interesting. And now, you know, it used to be three generations and, you know, we're now getting four generations coming up to us. Wow. And, telling us how special the movie was. Do you meet people who are obsessed with the movie and, and with you and the other actors? Is it ever odd that way? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There are some, you know, some lovely ones and some strange ones. I suppose the, the oddest one was um, a, a young lady in Kansas City said, could she show me something? I went, yeah. And then she whipped up her shirt and over her back, entire waist to, to collarbone was a tattoo of me on the on the indicator I oh wow like, okay yeah that's uh, <laughs> that's quite something yeah i mean i just love your attitude towards this 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 project that you did so many years ago um, we're, we're very um we've we know how lucky we were you know and i speak for all of us with that we, we know how lucky we were being part of something that makes everybody smile Right. Everybody. I think it's interesting. There's lots of great films that do sink and they are never kind of yeah. never heard from again. Yeah. The quality of this film continues to, yeah. to be appreciated as the franchise continues, which I think is really, really interesting. It's an odd one. And I can't think of another movie, 
you know, I know that we get compared to Wizard of Oz, um, which, you know, I, I, I love Wizard of Oz, but I'm not sure it's something I would show my grandchildren. I, you know, I think huh. they'd be scared of the monkeys and I don't I think was. they'd understand the whole. Yeah, exactly. But this I will show them. So maybe, but I can't think of another movie that, that reaches all those generations of a family that we all get something out of it. Yeah. Yeah. But are you excited to see Wonka? I am. I am. I've got two granddaughters who are four and two. Um, they haven't seen my my version of it yet. Um, I think they might manage it this Christmas. I don't know. Um, but I will probably take them to see Wonka. I've, I've seen the trailers of it. It looks good. Julie Don Cole, <laughs> it was lovely to meet you. Thank you very much for being with us today. and Enjoy Wonka. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Christmas to all. Julie Don Cole played Veruca Salt in the 1971 movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Still, lots to come on Day 6, including what Christmas classic is the most recorded song ever? Sit down, Mariah. It isn't you. I distinctly remember hearing someone yell, Stop that van. From CBC Podcasts, an investigation into how young men are being recruited and radicalized on the internet. And she asked me if I was friends with a guy named Alec Manassian. By a new supercharged form of hate. On Facebook, police say he wrote the incel rebellion has already begun. A dark online subculture that's spilling over into the real world. Boys Like Me, available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. And we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. Dear Santa Claus, how have you been? Did you have a nice summer? How is your wife? I have been extra good this year. So I have a long list of presents that I want. Oh, brother. Please note the size and color of each item and send as many as possible. If it seems too complicated, make it easy on yourself. Just send money. How about 10s and 20s? Sally, the little capitalist in the making. You know what she could really use as a gift? A book. They're compact. You can read them pretty much anywhere. They're easy to wrap. And most books are good for you. And they're great for people who've been extra good this year. So if you're struggling with your Christmas shopping list, take a breath. Our Day 6 Books columnist, Becky Toyne, is here to help. Becky is back with her annual list of books to gift to kids and adults. Becky, welcome back. Good morning. Your list this year, as it does most years, includes fiction and nonfiction for adults, a couple of books for kids. But let's start with the adult fiction and a book called The Future by Naomi Alderman. What can you tell us about Naomi and her latest novel? Yeah, so this is Naomi Alderman, whose previous novel, The Power, was about five years ago and was huge, huge, big deal and came out endorsed by Margaret Atwood and, mm. and people loved it. Um, so a lot of expectation for her follow-up. The future opens with three tech billionaires essentially getting a notification on their fancy AI that the apocalypse is coming. Of course. And because they're the tech billionaires and in the book, the companies are modeled on Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Meta and X and the leaders of those companies share biographical details with all of the founders of those companies mm. in real life. And they get a couple days heads 
start on the rest of us because they have access to so many data points that they're able to figure out that the apocalypse is coming Mm -hmm. a little bit before the rest of us figure it out and before the panic sets in. So they have two days head start to get off to their bunkers. That's where the story begins. Then it rewinds a bit and we find out a bit more about them and a bit more in the lead up to this and a few of the characters involved. And of course, everything is not quite as it seems. The future is, I'm going to say that this is a beach book for the winter. Mm -hmm. It is immersive. It is fast paced. Sometimes it doesn't quite make sense, but I didn't care. I really (laughs) enjoyed reading it. All of the stuff it talked about, AI and tech and things that used to belong to all of us, like your data about what you did today and where you went and what you spend your money on that now belongs to companies that could use that data to predict things and sell it and Mm -hmm. make money. Um, It just, there was a lot of stuff in here that made me want to talk about it. And I felt like this is a novel I would recommend to people who liked Station Eleven, who liked The Circle by Dave Eggers, or who liked Naomi Alderman's previous novel, The Power. Okay, so there you go. The Future by Naomi Alderman, recommended by the person who was last here talking about the biography of Elon Musk. And the next book that you have for us is also called The Future. What can you tell us about Catherine Leroux's version? So first of all, it was an accident. I didn't notice that both of the novels had the same title until I was halfway through reading both of them. And then I looked and thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, So this is completely different. This is a dystopian novel by a Quebecois author. It's translated from the French. And it's set in Fort Detroit. In this version of the world, Detroit never became part of the United States. Mm. It remains a francophone Canadian city, but it's a city in ruins. There is a lot of violence there. There is a lot of neglect. There is, however, also community there. The people who live there do help one another. They plant gardens. They talk about the history of where they live and they're proud of where they live. The main character in the book is a woman named Gloria who has returned to Fort Detroit after the murder of her daughter from whom she had been estranged. And she's come back because she wants to look after her granddaughters who are teenagers. This story, which has magical realist elements as well, so it has this sort of wonderful, magical, kind of otherworldly feel that is sometimes sinister and sometimes very bright and hopeful, um, is a little bit Cormac McCarthy's The Road, Mm -hmm. but on its head. Instead of at the end of the world, it's every man for themselves. At the end of the world, everyone comes together as community. So I just really enjoyed um, that kind of mix of the dark undertones and the brightness and the hopefulness. So the second book called The Future is by Catherine Leroux, and it does sound absolutely fascinating. Up next, though, is the nonfiction selection, starting with Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech by Brian Merchant. Big tech is a big part of the conversation these days, as we just learned with your first pick. But where does this book begin? So this book begins 200 years ago. It is the story of the Luddites. And Luddite is a word that is very commonly known and also very commonly misused. It sort of is thrown around as a derogatory, um, like a bit of an insult for someone who doesn't like technology. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't like video conferencing. Can't we talk on the phone? Oh, you're such a Luddite, Right. right? And that's not what it means. The origins of the word, as Brian Merchant explains in great and rich and wonderful detail in this book, is from an uprising of weavers in the UK at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago. And for the first two-thirds of the book, it is the history of the Luddites, who were weavers who had spent many years perfecting their skill and their trade. And Mm -hmm. they were clever enough to understand that when one machine can come in and take away the work of six highly skilled adults and just be run by one completely unskilled orphan child who's now indentured into servitude in the Mm -hmm. factory, they Mm -hmm. said that's not good for anybody. And so he 
tells the story of the Luddites and the uprising of the Luddites. This is set in the Regency period, the period of Bridgerton that we're all fascinated with. But this is not people with the problems of who shall I marry? These are right. people with the problems of I see that new technology is coming to take away everything I know. And Brian Merchant connects the people who foresaw the social disruption of this new technology to the tech revolution of today? Exactly. And so towards the end of the book, what he does is he draws very clear line between what happened 200 years ago and what is happening today with big tech. For example, with a company like Uber or Lyft and with the taxi drivers who were then having to organize and say, wait a minute, I've spent my career gaining the knowledge of the city that I know like the back of my hand. You've just taken it all away Mm -hmm. and you've devalued what I do. Mm -hmm. So he draws a very clear line between the two things. Um, And so I thought this book was fascinating. I wish I could have read it 20 years ago. Um, Mm. I would give it to someone who likes history, who would like a business book, who's interested in tech. It's a really great Brian uh, Merchant's Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. So there's a dystopic theme so far in the books that you select for this holiday season. Okay, good. Because <laughs> uh, here's the next nonfiction book. It's called Parachute Women. Marianne Faithful, Marsha Hunt, Bianca Jagger, Anita Pallenberg, and The Women Behind the Rolling Stones by Elizabeth Winder. What can you tell us about Parachute Women? Uh, so this is a super fun book, and it pretty much does exactly what it says on the label. Um, it kind of tells you everything you need to know right there. This is a book about the women who were the girlfriends of the Rolling Stones in the early years of the Rolling Stones. And what it seeks to do is to take these women and present them not as groupies, but to say, look, these women were so important mm. in the Rolling Stones becoming who they were. Without these women, the Rolling Stones would not have dressed the way they dressed. They would not have read the poetry they read. Mm. They these women introduce them to drugs. They introduce them to people that they would not have had exposure to if they hadn't had these really forceful women in their life. And so the, the research in the book is is mostly taken from existing biographies and memoirs. And what Elizabeth Winder has tried to do is just to pick out the threads specifically to do with these women and then use the threads to make a new sweater that's just about the women behind the Rolling Stones. Great. It assumes a certain amount of knowledge on the part of the reader about who the Rolling Stones are and about who these women are. So I wouldn't give it to someone who has no idea who the people on the cover are, but it's a super fun read. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's Parachute Women by Elizabeth Winder. Now, for our younger audience out there, let's take a look. This is something that I think is probably better for boys, but it's probably a, a good book for girls as well. It's called Stunt Boy by Jason Reynolds. What's Stunt Boy about? Why do you think it's a good gift? So Stunt Boy is a series. The first book in the meantime came out a couple years ago and book two, which is called In Between Time, just came out a couple of months ago. Um, it is definitely more for boys. The best friend is a girl, but the main character really is, is the boy. It's about Portico Reeves who lives in an apartment building, but he's like, it's like I live in a castle. We have 100 bedrooms and 50 bathrooms and no one lives in a castle as Hmm. great as ours. Um, And he gets frets in his tummy sometimes, but when he's secret stunt boy that only his best friend knows about, he doesn't have the frets in his tummy. Um, I really liked this book. It's fun. It's gorgeous. It's like a novel, but the text in it has the impression of being hand-drawn. It is heavily, heavily color illustrated. And if, like me, you are a little frustrated sometimes with the offerings for middle grade reader 
boys um, that kind of valorize just being stupid and dumb and not caring about things and teachers are dumb and parents are dumb and let's go pick on the smart kid with glasses. Um, I'm a little tired of that and I found that this was a really, really positive alternative to that that is fun and about imagination but also has some deals with some serious themes as well because Portico is is sort of navigating the divorce of his parents as well. Okay, that's Stunt Boy by Jason Reynolds. Drawings by Raul III and there are two books in this series thus far. Now, something for the even younger readers out there, boys or girls, it doesn't matter. It's a picture book recommendation. Always one of my favorites. What do you have for us this year? I'm going to talk about ploof. And just (laughs) saying ploof, don't you already feel happier? (laughs) Isn't it lovely? (laughs) It's by Ben Clanton, uh, who writes the Narwhal and Jelly books. Uh And this is an interactive story in the vein of Hervé Thuet's press here. And so um, ploof is a little tiny cloud. And when you're reading the book um, with a little child, it encourages you to do things to help Ploof tell the story. So if he's feeling shy, you encourage him to come out or you play hide and seek with him and you close your eyes and you count to 10. And when you turn the page, you just have a page filled with tiny sheep and Ploof the cloud has become a little tiny cloud and he's hidden in the sheep and you have to find him or he gets stuck in a tree and you have to shake the book. It is absolutely adorable and it's a beautiful way to get very little kids to feel that they are also involved in telling the story. I would read this to a kid as young as two um, and have them involved in telling the story with me. I read it with my seven-year-old who still found it so charming that he then went and read it to his stuffies and had them blow on the book and shake the pages. <laughs> it's, it's gorgeous. And it just even saying the title just makes you so happy. Ploof. That's Ploof <laughs> by Ben Clanton in an interactive book for the young readers in your life. Becky, happy holidays to you and your family. Thank you very much for being with us. Happy holidays. Happy reading. We'll see you in the new year. Becky Toyne is our Day 6 Books columnist, and you can find a list of her books on our website at cbc.ca slash day6. Pop quiz. What is the best-selling Christmas single of all time? Need a hint? It's about snow. What? That didn't help? Okay, the person who recorded it has a name that rhymes with sing. Of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know White Christmas, yeah, it's the best-selling single ever. It's also the most recorded song ever. There are more than 500 versions, but Bing Crosby's is the most iconic. His recording alone has sold more than 50 million copies over the years, and it all started in 1942 with Bing singing it in the movie Holiday Inn. I mean, that song, it started out as just something kind of personal, and then it became something, just a, a plot point in a movie. But this is just at the advent of World War II, and then it becomes a song of longing. And as such, uh, and when he was singing for servicemen and people like that, it just was a song of longing. American feelings for back home, the unattainable, and you long for it. And uh, it just swept the nation. That's Arnie Fogel. I'm a radio broadcaster and a vocalist performer and a bunch of other stuff right here in Minnesota where I've uh, lived all my life. Arnie's a bit of a Bing Crosby expert. A friend of mine took me uh, to uh, see a new movie called The Road to Hong Kong in uh, about 1962 when I was 13 years old. And I thought, geez, what a great picture. What a funny movie. And that guy singing, 
he really has it all together. He sings, he gets the gal, he's confident. And when you're 13 years old, you're kind of looking for somebody to emulate. And uh, this guy was the guy for me. I just thought, boy, that's really somebody that I would like to be like. Back in the late 30s, when Irving Berlin started writing the song, it wasn't all about treetops glistening. The opening verse was anything but white. It was green. The sun is shining, the grass is green, the orange and palm trees sway. I've never seen such a day in Beverly Hills, L.A. But it's December the 24th, and I'm longing to be up north. Then the accompaniment goes, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, and so on and so forth. But wait, what's that about orange and palm trees swaying? The main thing you have to know about White Christmas is the song predates the movie Holiday Inn, from which it was first heard by the public at large. Irving Berlin wrote it earlier, and it's quite personal, and uh, it's thought to be uh, him writing about his own situation and just wishing that he was back where his family was. You know, he's an Easterner, and so are his people. And he was out West writing music for movies. He was wishing to be back home. Now, later on, as it became apparent that it was going to be part of this new movie, from, you know, it wasn't originally a Christmas movie. It was a a movie about the holidays in America. And uh, realized that uh, with that verse, the song was totally inappropriate for the storyline of the movie. So they dropped it. So Irving Berlin wrote the song as a cynical look at a green Christmas in L.A. And by the time Holiday Inn came out, the year after Pearl Harbor, many American troops were spending their first Christmas overseas fighting the war. And Bing Crosby was there entertaining them. Those servicemen looked down and cried when he'd sing White Christmas to them. He he was on the road uh, overseas constantly during World War II. Uh, That was one of the main things he did in those years. And they cried. And he cried. He'd have to go off somewhere and just kind of keep the mood light because he didn't want the servicemen to see how the song affected them. And so did uh, I'll Be Home for Christmas. That affected uh, servicemen in much the same way. There was a ban on playing that song on the air for a few years, uh, 1943, 1944, because it they didn't want to make listeners too sad. White Christmas is Bing Crosby's biggest hit, and he's now synonymous with the holidays. As for Arnie, that's a mixed blessing. People forget that Bing Crosby wasn't just the guy who sings White Christmas. Bing Crosby was the most popular singer of the first half of the 20th century, and he became that uh, long before he ever sang any uh, holiday-oriented music. He was the guy who brought jazz together with the microphone and gave birth to pop singing. There hadn't been any such animal until Bing came along and just the right guy at the right time because he came along when Talking Pictures first came in. He came along when Network Radio first came in. He came along when uh, uh, electrically recorded records came in. He's the guy who invented the way you sing into a microphone. And so I do occasionally want to tap people on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, he didn't just do Christmas music. He's also the great pop music hero of uh, late 1920s, well into the 1950s and 60s. 
but as far as White Christmas is concerned, the other half of that, the other side of that uh, equation is uh, maybe uh, that having been forgotten by a lot of people or unknown to a lot of people, it's good that White Christmas and the, the Christmas songs are there because they prevent him from being forgotten. Bing Crosby was in the top 10 of money-making deceased performers, uh, according to Forbes magazine last year. That would not have happened had it not been for White Christmas. Arnie Fogel is a broadcaster and musician in Golden Valley, Minnesota. And that original starting verse for White Christmas has been recorded over the years, including by Bette Midler, The Crash Test Dummies, and Barbara Streisand. The sun is shining, the grass is green, the orange and palm trees sway. There's never been such a day in Beverly Hills, L.A. But it's December the 24th. Rift from the headlines. And here we go. It's Rift from the headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links these riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Put on the telly. Justin Bieber with Sorry, Slaughterhouse and Flip a Bird, and Ming T with BBC, and Denise Atkins of Innisfail, Alberta, correctly guessed the headline that we were looking for. BBC presenter apologizes for flipping the bird at the start of a live news broadcast. Congratulations, Denise. A Day 6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. And now here's this week's clue. Having my baby. What a lovely way of saying how much you love me Having my baby What a lovely way of saying what you're thinking of me And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. From the headlines.
And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Annie Bender, Sarah Melton, and Pedro Sanchez. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott, and I'm Brent Bamber. It's four days to elections in the Democratic Republic of Congo, five days to the winter solstice, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6. Even saying the title just makes you so happy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.